and welcome back to Ladies First, your one-stop shop for fem slash culture here at the Fundamentals. I am Elizabeth, and with me I have Corey. Hello. And Gretchen. Stop. All right, this week we're going to move into part two of my problematic fem slash tropes dissertation, and we're going to start talking about relationship dynamics. All right, so, uh, (laughs) (laughs) yes. All right, so, um, a brief little moment to soapbox, if you'll allow it. Uh, (laughs) We talked a lot about depiction versus endorsement last week, and that becomes significantly more important when we're talking about relationship dynamics. Uh, because depiction without commentary or context is always going to be interpreted as endorsement by your audience. So you have to be very careful about not just what you say, but how you say it. So we're talking about problematic queer tropes. Uh, There is always value in presenting problematic tropes and saying that these things do exist. They exist in reality. They may be caused by media influence, or they may be influencing the media, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, It would just be disingenuous to claim that these tropes don't exist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and especially when we're talking about going back into historical media, uh, there's a quote, it's actually about the old Warner Brothers racist cartoons, but I still find it quite apt for most things like this. It's, uh, the cartoons you were about to see are products of their time, they may depict some some of the ethnic and racial prejudice in American society. These depictions were wrong then, and they're wrong today. While the following does not represent Warner Brothers' view of today's society, these cartoons are being presented as they were originally created, because the do otherwise would be the same as claiming these prejudices never existed. Mm. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, that's definitely important to talk about, because there are so many... The history of fo- problematic femcest tropes has is so connected to the barrier gaze trope, which has a very, very, very long history in our culture. And as you just said, was problematic then, it is problematic now. But to ignore that this was a thing that was true is to imply that this doesn't happen. And it does. Mm -hmm. These are problems. These are consistent problems that we've had, not just now in 2016, but for decades. If if women loving women were given relationships at all in media, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so uh, if if I can for just a minute, I think I see where this wanting to make an ideal world comes from from the sense of like escapism Mm. you know like we see with teen wolf it's okay if you're gay in that world or with faking it pretty much everybody was okay with it and i can see where they're coming from Uh, you know wanting to give some kind of escapist alternative but at the same time yeah i like cotton candy but i can only eat so much cotton candy before i get sick and i don't (laughs) want it anymore because it's not good for me it yeah. doesn't, you know, it's not anything I, it's nice, but it's not anything I need in the sense of, like, that kind of nourishes me. Mm-hmm. And it's the same, I think, with some of these tropes that we're going to get into, like, especially the relationship dynamic tropes. They're really nice, and I know Elizabeth has a lot we're going to launch into here in a minute, 
But mm-hmm. I just want to be like, yes, they're really nice as this kind of escapist fantasy. If you're having, you know, like a crappy day and you want to go read something. But over and over and over again, it's not escapism anymore. It's becoming a pattern and it's something that instead of realizing this isn't real, it starts to kind of become internalized and Mm -hmm. starts manifesting. And Mm -hmm. we can't afford to let that happen. Right. You know, because we don't live in that world. And some of these issues that we're going to talk about, they have very real world consequences. Mm -hmm. So we can't just act like they're not a problem or they're like, oh, hey, hey. You know, because to do so otherwise would be the same as claiming they never existed. Or that they are not an issue. Right. Yeah. Because our media is so few and far between, we get so many few ships. it can be really tempting to erase all of the issues. Yes. Because we get so little, why criticize when you have only get crumbs? Or instead of erasing them, we just internalize them and we make them our new normal. And I know, like, Elizabeth especially has spoken at length about some of these. We're getting ready to talk about one of them. And I'm going to get off my little soapbox here and let her Hmm. uh, launch into this. But some of the tropes that we've had presented as media, since we have so few media examples, we internalize and we kind of make them our reality. And I can go on for hours about how damaging I think elements of the L word were. Mm, right. I know Elizabeth's heard me. I uh, <laughs> I didn't even write. It. I didn't even write the show that I was particularly picking on, and she got it immediately <laughs> <laughs> for this first point here. Uh, yeah, so that brings us to our first our first little dot here, and that's codependence oh, in women loving women relationships. This is a humongous problem. It's a problem in real life, and it is a problem that crosses pretty much all of our media and most of most of the way that our relationships are portrayed. I feel like a small part of this is that there this I've talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the stereotype that women are more emotional than men are. And mm. so it sort of feeds into this very um vi- almost viciously emotional relationship dynamics that you see between two women, which mm. If you've ever been in a relationship with a woman, you know how absolutely true this trope can be. However, I feel like the media, in my personal experience, I feel like the media portrayal actually has made the problem worse. Especially in maybe about the past five or ten years. Hmm. And this this also goes into, with codependence, I think this ties into the stereotype of U-Hauling. Mm-hmm. Lesbian urge to merge. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the joke is, what does a gay man bring on a second date? What second date? What does a lesbian or woman-loving <laughs> woman bring on the second date? A U-Haul. So I think it ties into very much with this codependent kind of portrayal of we have to become one immediately. One date... <laughs> And I need all of your social security information, your tax returns, we're getting married. I mean, you think I'm joking, but... No, she's not. There are women who are listening to this podcast, who are going to be listening to this podcast, and are like, oh my god, that's me. Yeah. Or, oh my there god, are, there, there. there are people listening to this podcast who are going to be like, I feel really personally attacked right now. It's okay, <laughs> we're with you and we understand. 
right? Because there's this Russia, under, do you have anything? Uh, there's a sense of urgency, I think, especially for relationships among minorities, that you never know how much time you're going to get. You never know if it's going to be persecuted for it or called out for it or have any kind of negative feedback. So you just kind of rush really headlong straight, you know, into the relationship. And this can be underscored by the fact that a lot of times the femme slash characters are secondary or even tertiary characters. Mm -hmm. They get very little screen time. So even though their development... I say in scare quotes, might take place <laughs> over the course of a season, if you were to trim it down to just their scenes, it might be four minutes. And in that four minutes, they go from like meeting each other, falling in love, to moving in together and professing their undying love to each other. And and that's really unhealthy. Yes. Um, <laughs> but we... But okay, it's not quite that fast. It, right. But then this is the thing I think we're trying to get across of it's okay to be your own person in a relationship and Mm -hmm. to maintain your own sense of self. Right. In fact, that's healthy. You know, you don't have to be so completely wrapped up in your partner that you lose your sense of self and who you are. And I think that's a big thing we see with especially the women loving women codependent relationships And it gets so messy because everything just kind of becomes this circular web of conflict. And you have no distance to be like, wait a minute, why why are we, why is this an issue? I don't care about this. She cares about this. Okay, well, that's her problem. We need to compromise. But why am I getting upset about this? Mm Mm-hmm. But it can be helpful to think about how this can be a problem in straight media as well, where you have a man and a woman in a relationship together. And typically, if one of them is going to become really, really emotionally invested and make their life about the other person, typically, though not always, typically it is See romantic comedies. Yeah. Just about any of them. The female character will drop everything in her life and become consumed with the relationship. There's a reason why the, like, nagging girlfriend is a trope. The girlfriend who texts you, like, you know, 100 times a minute. Where are you? What are you doing? Why aren't you talking to me? Why haven't you responded? Like, it's that kind of thing. But sometimes media makers will make both women in the relationship like that. And that's kind of what we're getting at with this idea of codependence, this excessive emotionality is that you you might have two female characters portrayed as being in a relationship who become so consumed with each other in their relationship that they're no longer interacting with anybody else. And they've completely lost their sense of self. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. not a thing we should be repeating in media. <laughs> no. No. I'm, no. <laughs> I'm quite frankly, uh, this is probably the trope that I am the most sick of seeing. Mm-hmm. Um. Although, there is another one, and funny enough, it's actually, as I, as we said on the last problematic uh, podcast, that a lot of problems often tend to be overcorrections of other problems, uh, but we have, on the other side of the spectrum, 
the women loving women who can't really seem to commit to anything. Mm. So you have also uh, from the L word C Shane. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Uh, yep. Uh, commitment phobia and the cheating bisexual. Mm. This is often actually sometimes sometimes related to why the bisexual is also a suffering bisexual. Ah, uh, yes. Well, yes, you have to be punished narratively because you can't keep it in your pants. Unless you're a man, in which case you shall be congratulated. <clears throat> I'm not bitter. <laughs> she said bitterly. <laughs> With a bitter expression. Well, but mm-hmm. we do see this, though. Like, you see, like, the lesbian player or the cheating bisexual. Um, I mean, yes, I said the L word, but Shane is kind of a really great example of that. Um, I mean... Especially she, since she was so idolized yes. in the lesbian community. Still is, even. And this is what I was talking about earlier when I said this becomes our new normal and we kind of internalize it and it becomes something good. And I'm not mm. saying not everybody is built for, you know, serial monogamy. I'm not saying you have to be, you know... You don't even have to be in a relationship. Not everybody's built for that. You know, you could be arrow, you could be ace, you could whatever. You could be uh, polyamorous. Uh, we're specifically talking about, you know, that kind of destructive element of serial dating as portrayed as, oh, well, they're edgy and they're cool and they just, they get with everyone and ignore that, yeah, Shane had a lot of problems. <laughs> and I will say, you know, Elward did acknowledge Shane had a lot of issues. But it kind of gets swept up under the rug with this commitment phobia. Instead of it being acknowledged as commitment phobia, it's, oh, well, they're cool. They're a lady player. You know. Well, it's taking something that is valued about masculinity in our culture, mm-hmm. which is men who have multiple sexual partners, typically female sexual partners, and saying that it's valuing a something that it, I would say is a part of toxic masculinity and applying it to female characters and saying, yes. look at this cool, awesome, edgy girl. She sleeps around. She's fine and awesome with it. Which, if you and your partners are okay with that, that's great. Like, if if you and the people that you are in a relationship with either at once or serially are totally fine with that dynamic, there's nothing wrong with it. The problem because there when is you're a... only... No, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, there's a very big difference between polyamory and side-hoe culture. It's not yeah. one and the oh, same. totally. And... Right. The, the the latter is the one that tends to get glamorized and glorified, not the former. The former can be done in a healthy manner. The latter is most definitely not. Right, right. Yeah, and as we said, a lot of times this is applied to bisexual women who are often perceived of as being more likely to cheat because their attraction to both men and women inherently makes them unstable for some reason. And especially a bisexual woman cheating on her female partner with a man. I hate this. Very, very common. Yep. 
Well, and, I mean, I've talked about this before. I know I've talked about it with Elizabeth. Like, there are some really negative real-world side effects with this. I mean, Mm. it was a year or two ago, there was a What Do Lesbians Think About Bisexuals video on YouTube that a fairly well-known lesbian blogger made. And it just just had other fairly well-known lesbian bloggers saying really awful just offensive biphobic shit. Like, pardon my language. Like, I watched this and I was just like, really? It's like 20... I think it was 14, 2015. And we have not moved at all. And it's all going back to this whole bisexual women are guaranteed to cheat on you. Or, you know, it's just a phase that they're going through, you know. Or they're just dipping their toe into lesbianism before they marry a man. Right. Uh, Corey, do you remember the term lug? This is, like, such an old-fashioned oh, term. Oh, um, um, oh, yeah. Lesbian until yes. graduation. It's <laughs> oh. so 90s. Oh, man, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I had but, never... Uh, and it's... Yeah. It, it, it seems sort of antiquated now, but I, I feel like, actually, this mentality is making a comeback. It is. And I mm-hmm. don't support that. Sorry, go ahead, Gretchen. Oh, I was just gonna say that I hadn't heard lug, but I had heard lesbian until graduation. Um, and I wasn't even I wasn't even raised in an environment where that was something that was talked about a lot. But I've heard of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and it, it just it really reinforces this awful idea that, like I said, bisexual women are just going through a phase, and you're all you know we're gonna all go back to marrying men. And then there's this equally problematic idea that, oh, well, there's obviously something wrong about a monogamous bisexual woman choosing a man as her spouse. I mean, you go on to certain forums on the Internet, and they have words (laughs) reserved for us. Uh, I think one of their favorite terms is bislet. And they completely erase our queer identity uh, as just attention-seeking, or we're slutty, or we just want to get laid, or we're leading the lesbians on. Mm-hmm. And um, I can kind of sorry. And go ahead. the problem is, is it keeps being reinforced in the media. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, because there are understandable reasons for that mentality and behavior and elizabeth and i have talked about this before do you want to explain since this was something that oh yes um i can i can kind of understand where the impulse comes from well number one uh the say probably about 10 maybe about 10 years ago this mentality was pretty common but also a lot of Discourse isn't really the right word for it, but we're going to go with discourse about gay rights was very dichotomous, and it was very much focused on gays and lesbians. The B and the T didn't really exist, especially amongst younger crowds. It wasn't. It isn't really until you get a little bit older and get more exposure to the rest of queer culture that that really starts to come in. Uh, but with, especially with things like the term bi slut, I can understand where the impulse comes from usually it comes from a place of hurt and if you're using this type of phrase usually the sort of 
implication behind it is that this allows you to take the blame of a failed relationship and make it about something other than yourself and the person who you were in the relationship mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. As you can... And this is a common, very, very common impulse. Everybody does this during a breakup, that you desperately want it to be anybody's fault but your own. Mm-hmm. But the hope, the hope is that you sort of outgrow this. Because ultimately, um, I think it was Evan Rachel Wood... I believe a little while ago on Twitter had said that any privilege that a bisexual woman gains by being able to air quotes blend into society is mitigated by erasure of part of your identity. So yes, you can blend into society in the sense that you can, in theory, find a man and marry him and be happy that way and not have part of yourself missing. But you are still missing a part of yourself because you can't own your queer identity. Mm. Or it feels like right. when you try to, you run into other parts of the queer community who don't want you. Right. Yes. Right. I know that's... And as we've been saying, the problem... Go no, go ahead. I was going to say, the problem becomes when an understandable reaction to a failed relationship becomes a media shorthand and stereotype of bisexual mm-hmm. women. Because, yes, it's understandable when you are a lesbian and you have been dating a woman who, and the relationship fails and she ends up in a relationship with a man afterward, it's understandable to be hurt and upset and lash out. And I've been there. (laughs) (laughs) um, And that's not her fault. It is not the woman's fault who is now in the relationship with a man. And that's not true of all bisexual women everywhere and it's it's problematic because it it generates this mentality about bisexual women but at the same time about, that I mean, they are that they're secretly in a phase or going to go back to men or that they're guaranteed to cheat on you with the man and and that's a problem because it's not true yeah and you don't see that same level of introspection you know when you're dating a lesbian and your girlfriend breaks up with you and starts dating another woman. You still have to see your loved one or ex-loved one or someone you're still getting over dating someone else. Right. I think it goes right. back to what Elizabeth talked about of you can put this blame on this external factor instead of having to have that kind of introspection with yourself on what did you contribute to this relationship that maybe caused it to fail. And- right. And for example, if people are looking for media in which this happens, I mean, even as recently as last year on the TV show The Catch, which it was last spring, part of the spring slaughter, that uh, a character named Felicity was murdered because she was cheating on her boyfriend with his sister. So in this case, you have a bisexual female character who is not only cheating, she's killed for it. Which implies that she's killed for being a bisexual woman, a.k.a. a woman who will cheat on her boyfriend. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about. Like, this kind of depiction has implications because there are stereotypes that exist in the world outside of this television show that this buys into. And I'm sure for some, like, with media, it's an easy shorthand to give somebody a flaw without having to, like, give them an organic character flaw. Something that 
mm-hmm. is a flaw for their character. It's easy short code for, oh, well, see, th- this is what they did wrong. As opposed to, you know, their last relationship failed because somebody cheated on them. They don't trust anybody else and they're wanting to lash out before they get hurt and end it. As opposed to, oh, well, they're just a bisexual mm. cheater. Right. It's also right. that this is a this is an image that's very easy to portray visually, especially since, as we've talked about at great length before, that women loving women characters are almost exclusively secondary or tertiary mm. characters. If you're going to give them a character flaw, this is something that can play out within a couple of seconds on the screen and doesn't mm. really require a lot of setup. Most people immediately understand, oh, this is a shitty thing to do. Yeah. Right. But that also, right. I mean, you can. Sorry. I was going to say, that goes into another point that I think Elizabeth made, because it it kind of implies that a penis, and when we're talking about this, we specifically mean in the context of, like, a cissexual, heterosexual man. Or, you know... In the TV world. In the TV world. They are... TV does not have evolved gender politics. (laughs) We'll get there one day. But it's it's assuming or implying that a dick... Is, proportion- is disproportionately important to, like, the stability and the foundation of a relationship. You know? <laughs> and normally it's a right. male writer who's making that statement, and it is passive-aggressive as hell, but, you know, what do you do? It is. Yeah, you need a man. Like, two women are inherently unstable, which I think brings us back to the codependence as well, which is another unstable mm-hmm. character trait. To Like, it's an unstable relationship. So both of these things are both inherently unstable, and by depicting them, you're implying that women-loving-women relationships, there's something inherently unstable about it. You need the kind of balance of opposites that a male and a female like imply in a relationship. And if you can't tell, I think it's utter bullshit. (laughs) Just to make it clear, I was to get back to it. So you have to suffer. <laughs> like, you cannot... You can't right. win. Right. You can't <laughs> win in this scenario. No. No. Uh, um, on, <laughs> on that note, uh, speaking of other passive-aggressive statements that straight uh, male writers like to make, I don't know that... Well, this is sort of part passive-aggressive. I think part of it is just willful ignorance. But uh, that, that other classic women loving women storyline where one of them is pressuring the other to come out of the closet. Uh, this, mm. I have to say, this is a small addendum is that a lot of people will say, um, full stop, if you are a, a women loving woman, you will never have this experience. That's actually not true, but there's a very specific way in which that's not true. If you live somewhere like where I live, which is the Bay Area, um, you do actually encounter this but it's really more of a consequence of that 90% of the people who live in my voting district voted Democrat. And we have five different kinds of recycling bins. It's a very liberal area. So you do see this in some contexts. But the way that it typically plays out on television is one partner is being heavily pressured to come out in a situation where it is not safe for them to do so. And this trope needs to die. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Speaking yeah. of something bisexual women loving women are also more commonly given. Being the one to pressure the partner to come out. 
Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, at least for me, I've noticed it seems to be like the bisexual partner's like, oh, you should... I'm like, it's a... F- pardon my language. It's a fucked up thing to do to begin with. It just is. Right. And I know we have this in our own community where it's like, oh, you have to be out and proud. I was like, no. Like, yeah, I get it why if you live in Elizabeth's area. I, I, I get why there's that impulse. And I see in the media... It was like, yeah, you have to be out and proud, and you can't be happy if you're not yourself. And normally it's the bisexual partner or the really well-adjusted lesbian partner that is pushing the other one to come out. I go to school in Montreal, and I've completely forgotten what fear feels like. Yeah, I mean... Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of times it comes from a place of privilege, the person who is pressuring the other is someone who either has never experienced what it is like to be afraid or fear for their own safety, or it has been too long since that was normal in their relation in their experience. Right, and but here's so the thing: is they're try- the writers are trying to make a point about how dangerous it is, and all these obstacles are going to have to come or probably overcome by coming out, and it's like we already know this shit. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you telling me this? I lived it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, you know, Elizabeth says, you know, she said before, seeing those forcefully outed negative consequences, that's that's not going to help our community. Mm-mm. That's just going to make people more fearful of coming out. It's going to add to self-loathing. It's like everybody has their own time. Right. It's only going to make people more afraid of admitting, sometimes even admitting that this is something they're thinking about. Because if you, if what you see on the media is, if you tell another queer person that you might be a lesbian or bisexual or, you know, anything like that, then they're going to tell you to come out. If that's what you think is going to happen, you might be more likely to just stuff your feelings. Because you're afraid of that mm-hmm. pressure. You don't want to experience that pressure. And that is not he- that is even less healthy oh, for people definitely. to well, and then ha- to continue to hide their identity from the community that could help them because they're afraid the community is going to pressure them. Well, and Elizabeth also had a really good point um, with that implication about, you know, you can't be in the closet and be content. Mm. You know, like, Elizabeth, did you want to elaborate on that? Yes, actually. Um, well, as I said, like, just where the the environment that I grew up in, there's actually a very clear transition point. And I distinctly remember it was about my freshman year in high school. So this is like 2003, 2004, where it was almost like a switch got flipped and the gay kids went from getting the crap beaten out of them every other day to it being reasonably ignored by most people. And then a couple of years later... Uh, when I was a senior and head of the GSA, I had freshmen coming in who were saying, openly saying that they were gay or bisexual. Mm. So, uh, but that was, there was this quick transition. And so it's, we sort of tried to foster an environment in which we were always uh, encouraging of people coming out. But then it's sort of, it's it, at first you're very, um, you're very protective of your own very careful about not outing other people. They were very insular. We were very uh, 
devoted to maintaining a very specific outward image to people who weren't part of our own group. So it was a very specific kind of lesbian, a very specific kind of gay man that we would allow the outside world to see. And then we transitioned away from that. And then in the process of transitioning away from that, and I think Glee had a lot to do with this, actually, upon reflection. This is not when I was in high school, but a few years later. Uh, the difference between, say, like, season one and season two with the way that Kurt's coming out was handled versus what happened to Santana. Uh. Like, this is... Yeah. Because you, you had with Kurt that the Glee Club closed ranks on him. And they're like, okay, we're not going to tell anybody. We're not going to force force out anybody. Karofsky never got forcefully outed, or at least if he, it was not in the first three seasons. I'm slowly working my way through it. We'll get there. But then Finn shouts out in the center of the hallway at Santana in the middle of like a passing period. There's like maybe a hundred people in the hallway. It's just like, how come you can't just come out? Like, oh my god, I wish I could reach for the TV and strangle mm-hmm. him. Right, but th- right. And but again, that's sort of a that's a very good reflection of people in the community and allies of the community who are often a little bit clueless about this, is that when you exist in these safe spaces, it's very easy to forget how small that safe space and, can be. I mean, Santana, because mm. I, I think, you know, um, how do I want to phrase this? It is much different for, like, say, you to be able to be open in San Francisco than where I grew up. You know, I grew up in an open carry state. You know, there's stuff Mm -hmm. that even now, I'm just like, oh man, they're out there. But it's because of where I grew up. You still can't do that where I grew up. It's not safe. And you see with Santana and Kurt, Mm -hmm. Kurt's still a white male. Santana is a Latina. Lesbian. Mm Yep. Yep. You know, she did not have a supportive family member. She is far more at risk than Kurt is if something goes wrong. So it's, you know, he did not take that into consideration at all. It was like, oh, it worked out for Kurt. He got bullied. It was better. Did not take into consideration any of Santana's very different circumstances. Mm -hmm. And proceeded. And it often does come down to that. I'm sorry. I said it often does come down to that, especially, like, in dealing with people, like, especially, like, teenagers and them coming out, like, a big factor, like, when I was at the GSA, a big factor that we'd, like, worked with kids a lot was um, how to deal with your families, because it really was a literal case-by-case basis. You had no idea how they Mm -hmm. were going to react. Right. Because you would have, like, the most most, um, die-to-the-wool Catholic families just completely come around within a couple of days and then you had the most liberal families or uh, you perceive them to be liberal and all of a sudden all these prejudices just jump out of the woodwork you would have no idea that they would have thought these things because they never would have vocalized these it's, it's sort of like closet racism it functions like this too you don't realize that your parents are racist until you date someone who's not white and it sort of just mm. appears out of the ether <laughs> overall right. point right. I think with this yeah. is don't use it as a trope. This is far too a complex, real-world issue to reduce to a fanfic element. I mean, if you're really going to insist on writing this, this this is something that has to be very nuanced. Because there are still a ton of real-world implications and effects on 
queer people globally. So it's not something that needs to be, you know, oh, this is this cool fan inversion of it that gets internalized, if that makes sense. Hmm. Right. And for those who might immediately jump to, well, but Maggie on Supergirl tells Alex that she ought to come out to her mom. I am going to say that isn't exactly what happened. Um, there was an implied uh, extra amount of conversation that had gone on. It was heavily implied. Also, right. we're talking about two adult women here. We're not talking about teenagers. Well, and I think you're right. And there's also a distinction between saying it might be helpful for you if you were to talk to your family and saying, I won't date you unless you come out or standing in the yes. middle of a crowded hallway and saying, why don't you just come out? Mm-hmm. Yes. It's a distinction that needs to be made. That making a suggestion saying, you know, it really might help your process. It might help you accept yourself better. It might help you feel better if you were to talk to your family. Then to say, like, you have to come out or I won't date you because I don't feel comfortable lying Mm -hmm. about our relationship. Or everything with glee. Like, those are different phenomena. And while it might be tempting to lump them all together, we shouldn't do that. Because for some people, it is helpful to talk to their family. And making a suggestion is not the same as forcing someone out or or even pressuring them to come out. Because all Maggie said was, it might help you if you were to talk to your family. And as you said, there's an implied further conversation going on. And... That's not the situation we're talking about here. We're talking about a much more heightened, pressurized situation wherein one partner is either demanding Making or that decision for them. Holding hostage. Right. Yeah. Right. If you really want an, an analog for that on Supergirl, go back to season one and watch the scene where... James. James asks Kara <laughs> if he can tell Lucy about her being Supergirl. Hey, I, I am still bitter that. about that. I will always be bitter <laughs> well, about that. Good. You, I cannot see that as anything else than a force outing metaphor. Sorry. Oh, it totally is a No, yeah, I saw the light. I saw the light. You but, brought me around to it. <laughs> anyway, to, to, yeah. to sort of start to wrap this, this point up, but this one is very personal to to every person on the queer spectrum because we have all dealt with some element of this. We will deal with this for the rest of our lives. There is no one and done coming out process which again, to continuously plug Supergirl, um, Alex's coming out story, one of the best things about it is that it isn't portrayed as being a one and done. It's very much much closer to how it happens in real life because for every new person you meet you have to make that decision of whether or not you're going to let them know. So everything from your your family members to every new friend you meet to even just the barista at Starbucks when they casually ask you about something you're wearing. Like, oh, my uh, significant other gave it to me. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. If you want another show that handles this well, uh, Corey and I will flail about one day at a time because it's amazing. And they yeah. handle this really, really well yes. with a teenage character. So, if you're looking we may for have to, we may have to do a show about that in the future. All right, moving on. 
Yes. So, because uh, we have one last point to get to, um, and this one I always actually found sort of funny because I go back and forth on how much I feel like this is reflected in real life, or whether it's mm. the chicken or the egg scenario. It's heteronormative dichotomy in portrayal of women living women relationships, and what this basically what this basically alludes to is that you can very clearly tell who is supposed to be the boy and who is supposed to be the girl. Wait, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's who you can very clearly tell which woman in the relationship is right, supposed to be the man and which right? is supposed to be the oh, woman. Oh no, I said it. Mic drop. <clears throat> You know what? I might actually fight you on that one, but that's another podcast. We'll get to the 100. I stand by that uh, statement. Come at me. It's the Come who at me. phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, lady. Um, anyways. <laughs> well, it's the... It's, you know, <laughs> we're just going to move on before we start a fight. episode. I, anyways. I do see what she's saying, though. Um, all kidding aside, it's very much this... Who's the dominant person in the relationship, or who's the man in the relationship? Who wears the pants? Who's in charge? That we have to assign. When really, like queer relationships should be yeah. our chance to explore yeah. other relationship dynamics, but we kind of pigeonhole it immediately into who's the dominant partner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, pretty who much. Who wears the strap on? <laughs> to oh, put it crudely. God. But hey, the the straight folk want to know, so we'll tell them. Yep, they want to know that. And sometimes it's mm-hmm. literal wardrobe choices. Like we talked about, we talked about before with some when we talk about how whether or not a fem slash ship fits a particular trope. One of those tropes is the like fem butch dichotomy typically in wardrobe maybe not in personality and gender expression but you might have one of the female characters likes dresses and the other one likes vests and bow ties and and has blazers and short hair and right I wouldn't go that far (laughs) yeah um a little bit there's a clear there's a there's sort of a clear dichotomy there. It, it often plays, especially in our own media. We're we're actually this is one of the things that we're actually consistently mm-hmm. better at than the straight writers. Um, in our own media, we tend to base it a little bit more around just yeah. dominant and submissive personality. Where mm-hmm. I I feel like we take it a step too far is when this goes into discussion of whether characters are tops or bottoms, and this is presented as sort of being a absolute set in stone thing no uh it's not that and it dips into this whole other realm of bdsm that most of these writers are not really shouldn't be anywhere near (laughs) i don't think that they understand well I, i think they and then it's this like you said it's a set in stone thing like nobody they're accidentally like have a day where like man I am in charge I'm on top of the world and then a week later it's like oh my god I just need somebody to take over for me for a little bit you know people it changes daily yeah right Right. and even even in heterosexual relationships or more traditionally outwardly presenting heterosexual relationships Mm -hmm. you you see the same dynamics Uh, but 
And I feel like it's also that when straight writers are trying to write these relationships, they have to write from their own perspective. It's really difficult to write from a bubble that isn't your own. Mm-hmm. Like, that's understandable. Every writer in the world has this problem. But so you see this with straight writers where they're writing this relationship and they're trying to write it exactly as every relationship they've ever had is. Which often it's very telling how much toxic masculinity has had an influence on any particular individual writer's life and how they write Mm-hmm. Women loving women relationships. Hmm. Do you have an example for that? Um. That you can think of. <laughs> all of them. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. The OC is a great example of oh, where you right. can very clearly see this weird thread of forced, really, uh, very forced um, gender dynamics and heterosexual tropes into a relationship that otherwise really wouldn't have them because Alex and... Yeah, Marissa. Marissa? I almost said Miranda. Marissa. Alex and Marissa are both pretty feminine girls. Mm. And they're both bisexual, which, you know, like, you know, that's no never mind to the writers after a certain point. But they sort of did fit into this dichotomy that felt really unnatural because their characters otherwise both would be quite feminine but once they put them together all of a sudden it started they started fitting into this mold this preformed mold and granted it was like one of not the first but one of the very early portrayals of this Mm -hmm. that lasted longer than a single episode Mm. but i mean this and also it's it's actually probably more overt with two men because it is much more noticeable oh, wow. when a man is overtly feminine than it is when a woman is a little bit more masculine. Because we tend to accept tomboys a lot more than we accept feminine men. Yep. Yep. Because even if you look at, like, Brittany and Santana versus Kurt and Blaine, that Kurt is... You would perceive Kurt to be more overtly feminine than Santana is overtly masculine. But it's not actually true. Santana's actually pretty butch. Just because she doesn't dress that way, she has that personality and that sort of air about her. But I mean, we could... Right. That's an entirely... Right. The depictions in Slash relationships is an entirely... That that could be its own episode easily. Um, <laughs> and that's beyond the scope of right. what we're talking about right now. Yeah. That's a very good point of... You know, like you said with Glee. And... I think... There's a very funny, to me, there's this contradiction with trying to fit this kind of heteronormative presentation. But we're so deeply opposed to portraying an outwardly butch woman-loving woman. We are so deeply opposed (laughs) to that, and it makes people so uncomfortable. Yeah, because at some level... Writers are still often writing their woman-loving women relationships to be appealing to men. And mm-hmm. a outwardly butch woman-loving woman is not appealing to men. And so they want both a heteronormative dynamic because it's what makes sense to them. But they don't actually want a butch woman-loving woman because... They mm-hmm. don't find that attractive. But then or appealing. We, we never see it though. So well, then it becomes just this reinforced of whenever we do see it, there's something weird or exotic or not quite right about it when they're being presented. 
So it's like this perpetual othering. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Yep. Which is interesting to me because I think that society, I think we flipped on this regard because when I was younger, so most of the visions I have in my head of woman loving woman characters from when I was like elementary to middle yeah. school are butch. 80s, they were 70s, 80s, they 90s, middle-aged, it was predominantly but... the association with the lesbian was yep. a butch woman. <laughs> yeah, you'd, you'd have look... the buzz cuts and the flannel and the, the boots and the lumberjack vibe. And that was what women loving women were, was they were butch. And we've gone so far the other direction that you hardly ever see a butch woman loving woman on TV anymore. That Alex would be considered anything other than a sort of... I don't, she, she's not butch, but I've heard people refer to her as that, and I'm like, oh no. No, she's like, her and Maggie are literally right in the middle of the spectrum. Uh, chapstick? Oh, yeah. Chapstick lesbians? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah oh, chapstick lesbians. God, that's such an antiquated term. We're so boys for a while. <laughs> B-O-I... Yes, the oh. female chauvinist pigs era. Oh, what a great book. We should all read it. Now that we've shown our age. <laughs> Yay. Well, I mean, and you made the point earlier that often problematic mm-hmm. tropes are hypercorrections of other problematic tropes. And this is, I think, yet another one of those examples, or at least a combination of that with heteronormativity of... For a long time, the the vast majority of the portrayals of women loving women were butch, and understandably, people who didn't fit that norm wanted representation as well. And I think the more common it became to tell stories about women loving women, then it gets into the whole thorny issue of male gaze and all of that, and femme women loving women just honestly are more appealing to They're our society than butch ones are because right yeah they're not yeah. as yeah they're not as challenging to the accepted norm and so we've now gone mm-hmm. so far the other direction that we hardly ever see them despite the fact that we have these heteronormative dynamics in women loving women because I honestly am trying to think that if there's a current butch woman loving woman character on tv right now and this is sort of looping back into what we were talking about in the first episode because this is sort of a cyclical problem that these things feed into each other that the the writing styles move into relationship dynamics and then they these begat the writing styles Mm -hmm. but (laughs) so that's the state of the union that we've given you. So what we'd like to move into for the conclusion of this episode is what we'd like to see going forward, especially since Mm -hmm. we're at the top of the year and 2016 was not really a winner for the women loving women community. So let's start with Gretchen. What would you like to see going forward? Well, the first thing I'll say is going off of what we just said, I would appreciate more butch woman loving women just across the board. I think that would be 
valuable, especially if butch woman loving woman in relationships with different kinds of other women loving women, not just two butch women or not just a butch woman and an overtly femme woman, which I think would play into the, the heteronormative dichotomy again. Just more... Yeah, more of that. That would be my first thing. I know I have other things, mm-hmm. but I'll let you guys <laughs> say some of what you want as well. Uh, okay. Um, my first one is uh, I want down with this utopia nonsense. Uh, this mm-hmm. being gay doesn't matter in this world. No. Oh. Um, as we sort of touched on in the beginning of the episode, that and something that I didn't quite go into detail before, but I'm going to do it now. Um, the experience of coming out, the experience of, of, well, experiencing homophobia, experiencing prejudice, that is so deeply intertwined with the gay identity, with the queer identity, that to separate it from the queer identity is disingenuous. It actually mm-hmm. makes the characters not feel like they're queer, because they're missing this entire humongous aspect of the queer experience. Mm-hmm. And often, when a writer does this, the motivation behind it is that they don't want to deal with that. And I just don't find this to be an acceptable excuse anymore. It's build your... You need to do your world building. Mm-hmm. Or you need to just not write gay characters. Or go go find your nearest gay. Can be any kind <sighs> of... Or nearest queer. Can be any kind. Really anyone will do in a pinch. will take it. And ask them to help you. That's mm-hmm. really all it takes. To create an authentic character. Right. So that's that's my like number one bone to pick going forward to 2017 mm. is I just do not want I don't want to hear this excuse anymore that like oh well it's a utopia no it isn't build your world or get out. <laughs> I have two and I'm going to keep them short. All right, Corey, what do you have one, for us? Write bisexual women better. All right. Just write them better. We've gone over it in this podcast. What our issues are. We went over it in the last podcast. I mean, just be better. Just be better. And then the other thing I really would like to see is addressing this codependency issue. This is one of my pet peeves. You know, just, it is not healthy. Mm. It is perpetuating really bad relationship dynamics. And it's got to start being undone somewhere. And unfortunately, we are what we consume. So we have to really start holding this to the fire of like, no, this is not healthy relationship behavior. You have to be your own person. You know, you have to retain your sense of self in that relationship. Mm -hmm. Getting so lost in somebody else that you don't know where you begin. Yes, it sounds romantic, but it is not healthy. And we've got to, we have got to start holding that to the fire. And calling it out for where we see it. So, I mean, those are my main two. Yep. 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 The other, my last one is just more diversity. Going, I mean, it feeds very much into the idea of having more butch women loving women. Just, just more diverse women loving women. I want to see more women loving women with different body types, with different ethnicities with different religious beliefs I mean really you could just say I want more woman loving woman protagonists yeah. in general we and want them to survive the season who survive and I want them to be different I want diversity 
I want, yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that really is just, I want more and I want more diversity. Because I'm, as much as I love the ships that we have, not every woman-loving woman fits fits into the stereotypes that we see on television of what they look like or believe or the backgrounds they come from. And more diversity is always better because, like every human being, woman-loving women come in all shapes and sizes and backgrounds and beliefs. And, mm-hmm. and I would like to see that reflected in media. Was there anything else, Elizabeth? Small addendum to that is it's not just variety. Yeah, just one one small thing. Um, That would be nice. I want to see more than one gay couple for a show. Mm. But we could just just bring those two things together. I think uh, we would be we'd be in pretty good shape going forward. We've made a lot of progress, and I'm happy for that. Mm. I just want more. Like let's just keep moving. Let's keep going. Yes. Right. All right. Yay. This might be the first one that we wrapped up <laughs> under time. So uh, thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, we are going to actively debate our next topic uh, for our next podcast. And we will see you all then. Bye.